0: Hello everyone, I'm Bill Roggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the long war. Today's Friday. So my co-host today is Benham Ben-Talablu. Benham is a senior fellow at FDD where he focuses on Iranian security and political issues, but Benham knows so much more about all the militias throughout the Middle East. Uh, Benham's my, my go-to when I want to know about anything and everything Iran. Benham, great to have you on your Friday spot on uh, Generation Jihad. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Thank you, guys. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. is all ours. Hope your travels, you know, I know you were traveling. That's why we missed you for a couple of weeks. Uh, hope you had safe travels and then welcome back to the United States. Thank you. It's good to be home. Yeah, well, we we got a, a little bit to, to cover. I think since you and I, we, we've covered the deterrence issue with the militias in Iran for quite a bit. And we're going to start off with that today. Uh, it's been over a month since the U.S. started launching offensive operations against the U.S. and uh, several weeks since the U.S. launched attack on Shia militias after the death of three U.S. servicemen. Where where do we stand? Has deterrence with um, with respect to Iran and its proxy militias been restored? Or are we in the same pattern of militia attacks and U.S. counterattacks and um, nothing is changing? What's your what's your take on this, Benham?
1: You know, there is uh, something I've been saying since, I think, December, which is we didn't lose deterrence or deterrence was not eroded overnight against these groups and it will not be rebuilt overnight. So so much of this is about our messaging, our military moves and the signals we're sending to the patron and the proxy as to what the potential next steps could be. And you and I have long critiqued the situation where the political press release outweighs or outshines or drowns out the military response on the ground. I think uh, we do have to commend the administration on a couple of counts. One, the, the response in the aftermath of the killing of the three service persons in Jordan was wider in terms of a geographic target dispersion, wider ranging than one would have thought would have been just the pinpricks. Uh, and then going after a Qatayb Hezbollah commander, uh, you know, in, in, I think was a targeted killing uh, by the U.S., um, I think in mid-February, I think on February 7th, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but from that, we kind of have reverted back to the patterns of the past, where we have something of an architecture in the region, whether it's in the Red Sea against the Houthis, or uh, in Iraq and Syria with the bases that either do have uh, air or missile defenses or versus the bases that don't, to be in the disrupt and degrade world. Disrupt and degrade. Disrupt by, you know being able to intercept that which they throw at us and degrade by going after the military stockpiles. And I think we're fast moving into a world where this is also familiar for the proxies, so they don't mind engaging in this kind of operation. And they may be prepared for, politically, if not militarily, uh, these kinds of responses. Um, And you and I have talked about taking the fight to the patron in the past, um, but we do have to threaten that which the regime holds dear. And even though... At some point, that may taking the fight onto Iranian territory. I think you and I have very different timelines for that. I think there is so much more that could still be done in Iraq and Syria. And those are things that need to be happening even before the U.S. is hit. We need to be responding to the point of origin much more forcefully. We need to make sure in terms of ISR, we're looking at things that are being put on rail launchers and moved on trucks and going after them. Uh, If allegedly there is a partner in Baghdad to work with, we need to work by with and through them to disrupt and detect these attacks to be able to make arrests, to be able to put people in jail, that stuff needs to be happening on steroids. We have to make sure everyone that we're shooting at, we also have subject to sanctions. There's an incongruity there that we can shoot at some groups that we haven't sanctioned yet um, or haven't developed more robust AKAs for on the terrorist list things yet. Um, so there's there's a lot more that can be done, and we should be going after the heads of these groups, not just mid-level commanders uh, as well. And that could begin to change the dynamic. And I And I use the word begin because until we... Don't get out of this disrupt and degrade world. We will at best, at best, at best, at best by, you know, just a couple of days of deterrence, which means the ball remains in the adversary's court.
0: It's an excellent point you you make that this deterrence has not been lost overnight. It's something that has eroded over time. And it's something that we are going it's going to take us time to rebuild. I completely agree with your analysis. I remember tweeting something about maybe a month or two back, you know, putting it, you know, it's, you don't need to truly understand these groups. Like, of course it helps to know who to go after if you want to go after these militias go after their top leadership those are the that's the way to make them pay a price but the iranians themselves they'll fight to the last iraqi to the last syrian to the last yemeni um until we start i agree with you until we start going after things that iran really cares about top leaders of its irgc top assets of the irgc I don't think anything is going to change on the ground and um you know look I I, I agree with you the strikes that the US carried out in Iraq and Syria and the, particularly in Iraq there's a political price there that the US pays because the Iraq the US is at, inside of Iraq conducting that mission against the Islamic state at the uh, approval at the support of the uh, Iraqi government and there's a lot of talk to get the um US to leave so that there is and that's another reason why let you know there needs to be quick and forceful action and, and and an attempt to you know to solve this problem quickly as opposed to stretching these tax out you know in a retaliatory manner. What did you how did you describe that, Benham? You said uh, disrupt and, and and degrade. Yes, the disrupt and degrade. And if you do this over time, the U.S. could be out of Iraq before this problem can even be solved, right? Because that that forces this problem to spread out over time, and it gives the impression that the U.S. is um acting particularly when the iraqi government doesn't approve of it you know to your point benham that the um working with the iraqis i think that ship has long sailed the i I view iraq the iraqi government as as a a satrapy of iran at this point go ahead you were going to say something like fully. you mean Uh, essentially right by i'm sure there's elements of the iraq and individuals within the iraqi government that would like to work with the us but the fact that these groups Hezbollah brigades um you know uh asiba hawk and iman ali brigades these these militias that are launching the attacks they're part of the popular mobilization forces which is part of the iraqi security architecture and the iraqi government won't rein them in I that to me tells me that this this battle this um you know the hope that we can work through with through and by the iraqi government is not going to work uh you know i'd like cut my teeth doing Iraq and looking at Iraqi politics and how the Iraqi security forces were built and then bedding with Iraqi military units. The U.S. influence quickly began to wane once the U.S. military began the withdrawal in 2000 and executed the withdrawal in 2011. And the Iraqis have quickly gone over to the Iranian sphere because the Iranians are willing to do what the U.S. isn't willing to do. Put skin in the game, put boots on the ground. During the fight against the Islamic State, the Iranians lost, um, members of their military, members of the IRGC, an Iranian general was killed. I remember they put a poster up to this guy who was a nasty individual, by the way, up in Baghdad. So I think that's where we are with Iraq. I mean, perhaps you may disagree. I I wish we could do that. I just think if we're relying on the Iraqi government to solve this problem, um, I think that that ship has sailed. I just know that there have been cases where
1: some, not now, not since October 7, but in the run-up there have been intercepted uh like physically like accosted arrested uh people people have been accosted and arrested and 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 i don't know on what legal authority by the iraqi central government but um prevented from firing uh you know uh, rockets uh at at u.s positions at, at times when you know these militias were basically getting anyone and everyone in the fronts of the front groups uh to be able to fire this stuff so the degree to which we can get any any cooperation, I think, is welcome, but it comes with all of the the huge caveats you said, which is, um, who knows how they're doing it? Who knows if they'll just do cash and release? Um, but we 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 need, in the absence of us fully on the ground doing this kind of stuff, we need as much eyes and ears as possible.
0: My guess is, in those instances, there might be a Kurdish unit or a Sunni unit groups that have sort of hitched their wagon to the U.S. and, and are actually supportive of the. and there could be Shias as well. Um, who are in support, but the Iraqi government again the 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 militias fall under the, the control of the Iraqi prime minister, and he is the one denouncing U.S. attacks on these groups. Ironically, you know the Iraqi government is saying, the prime minister office even is saying that when you know Hezbollah brigade members or or the um, members are killed, they're saying these are Iraqi soldiers, and they're technically correct because they report. Because they're part of the popular mobilization forces, which is an official branch of the Iraqi military. that's the whole conundrum that we're operating in there. And I'm not i'm I'm with you, Ben and we should definitely be working with the local groups that are helping us within Iraq. But I think when you look at it from a governmental standpoint from the top down, i I think that battle is lost. and this is this is a major this is something the u s is I just don't see our, our situation improving there over time, particularly as these strikes are launched and the Iraqi government becomes more and more incensed every time the prime minister comes out and denounces a US strike that killed a Hezbollah brigade member leader um that's a win for these militias that's a that's a feather in their cap it's a propaganda win and it's it's just more erosion of the support for the US to remain in, in inside of Iraq um but yeah let's let's uh, move on from there um can, speaking of actions against the militias the US conducted a cyber attack on what is believed to be an Iranian spy ship that's plying the Red Sea and the uh, Bab el Strait and the Gulf of Aden? Tell us a little bit about this, uh, Benham. What was? It? Do we know the, the name of the ship? Do we um, was the uh, was the cyber attack effective? Is this enough? You know,
1: um, we've been talking about the Beshad, which is an alleged IRGC uh, spy ship that you know open source reporting. Uh, claims is somehow assisting the Houthis with targeting, particularly for the anti-ship ballistic missiles. The Houthis are the only proxy that have and have used uh, anti-ship ballistic missiles. These are copies of Iranians' uh, missiles that have electro-optical uh, seekers on them. Uh, it's hard to hit a moving target at that speed and at that angle, uh, which is why they've seen a lot of the near misses and a lot of the kind of the, the you could say more harassment using these missiles than, than actually being able to like land a blower or make an impact. They haven't sunk really any of tankers, but they've caused a lot of damage, particularly when married with, you know, anti-ship cruise missiles and, and one-way attack drones. But um, in a time when an Iran-backed proxy is threatening freedom of navigation in the Red Sea and around the Bab al-Mandeb, there's no reason why any Iranian vessel should be permitted freedom of passage or uh, to be engaging in any kind of, and anti- what they allege is an anti-piracy mission in the region and have this kind of freedom of maneuver, even though you do have this under the law of the seas. Uh, when they're literally restraining everyone else's right to benefit from peaceful transit and commerce per the law of the seas. So I think a more forceful response should have come much, much earlier. It should have come much, much earlier to the predecessor spy ship to the Behrshad, which was another uh, Iran-linked uh, ship, which was called the Sevis. Uh, that eventually had some kind of failure. Some thought it could have been like a sabotage operation and had to be pulled out of there. Um, it, the Behrshad, if I'm not mistaken, moved into the region in 2021. Uh, in 2023, there were more reports of it, you know, post October 7 in the Red Sea, then it moved into the Gulf of Aden, then there's been questions about where it was idling. Um, we assume, again, the attack, the ship that was attacked was the Beishad. Many people are reporting on it as as such. Um, but it raises the question, does Iran have any other kind of smaller naval assets out there? There was just a recent report, you know, confirming something that I think you and I and any LWJ listener would say, duh, to, which is the presence of the IRGC on the ground in Yemen. You know, we've been ringing the alarm bell on this for years now. It's good to have occasional open source press, you know, actually being able to call a spade a spade here. But what we think, if it really is the U.S. behind this cyber attack, is a signal of resolve or a signal of strength to engage in said cyber attack is likely going to be misperceived as a signal of weakness. Um, The fact that the ship was permitted to idle for so long here, the fact that the ship was able to engage in these kind of uh, targeting missions and, and, and be unmolested or unharassed. Uh, and the fact that the ship did not or is not going to be sustaining major physical damage that would provide the Iranians with a PR defeat rather than a PR victory for so long is going to get in the threshold understanding mentality of the regime in Iran and its proxies uh an impression that they can still get away with it. and this is the the fear I have in general with our high tech posture in the region, our move towards unmanned assets and our willingness to integrate cyber into the spectrum for the use of force. And I understand the need to integrate cyber and recommend integrating cyber and also understand the need to, you know, begin to, you know, really beef up the US force presence in East Asia, which does mean, unfortunately, something of a drawdown in the region. But the more we move to unmanned assets, the more you can expect the Iranians to mess with them, because they'll think the threshold for our use of force is less. And the more when the Iranians are engaging in activities with real material consequences, and our response is not kinetic, but it is cyber, then they'll think they'll continue to do it. So uh, we are living in a world where the implications of these non-kinetic actions are yet to yield for us the implications of doing it
0: kinetically. You know, Benham, that as you were stating that, it reminded me our our over-reliance or our over um, our belief that these things are are extremely effective tools. Things like sanctions, things like designations. I'm all for them. Uh, they they are they, they are tools in the toolbox, but they are not the ultimate solution. I agree with you. You know, a cyber attack. If I'm the Iranians, the way I view it is, is see. They're unwilling to d- actually do something meaningful. Let's continue our operations because they're afraid. And and it gets to that point too. We, you know, we want to. I, you know, what this administration ultimately is struggling with is it wants to d- store re- deterrence, but it doesn't want to escalate. And you, those two things, unfortunately, you can't have it both ways. You can't get deterrence with the Iranians while not escalating in this in this situation. And and that's really where we are. I think this is the perfect example. You know, this cyber attack. Again, something, if we launch a cyber attack on the ship on the way to, say, disable its engines or put a hole in it and let it take on water so it has to be evacuated, or actually what I would do is just sink it. And by the way, no one needs to take credit for that. Um, I think to me, the most effective thing is to not mention that these things are happening. Um, Not take credit for things like for, for these types of strikes. Just do it and keep them guessing. Um, is it the Israelis that did it? Is it the Americans? Maybe the British decided to go. over. Like, who knows? But maybe the French got involved again. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they're, they're, there's they're, they're, a new coalition in the region, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, have a lot of people or maybe the Egyptians. A lot of people are losing a lot of money by this blockade that, that the Houthis have effectively put through. Um, and I really think that's, you know, to me, it's this is the, the cyber attack. It's just, a, you know, it's symptomatic of, of, of the problems that we face with wanting to restore deterrence, trying to stabilize the situation. But fear of escalation, and, and you, these two things, you know, you can't have it both ways, and that's what this administration really doesn't understand.
1: And it also conflates, you know, the ways and the means and the ends. And that statement, that in my view, brought to you by either misunderstanding or hubris, by Jake Sullivan last year about the region being the calmest it's ever been, and then having to be under, having to be significantly rewritten uh, by Secretary Blinken a few months later when he said the region has never been more dangerous. I'm just paraphrasing both of those gentlemen's comments, but you can see how in such short order uh, it can change and it can change on a dime. Uh, and the period of time that they had bought a few months of no militia attacks likely followed a major reversal by one of our major allies in the region, Saudi Arabia, you know, the diplomatic rapprochement with the Iranians uh, and the willingness for our partner to essentially begin the paying bribes business, to be entering the pay to play business because they lacked proper support from us. Uh, for over a decade and felt slighted, whether that was the JCPOA, the Yemen war, uh, the politics of Iraq before that, and everything involving Iran and the region since then. So, you know, the fact that our ally thought they could buy peace ended up yielding uh, a national security advisor in the U.S. misreading this as, you know, the U.S. has successfully deterred someone who actually has more capability and more intent to escalate than ever before. Yeah, absolutely. The real world cost
0: of that now. Yeah, that, that was, I mean, that that article was written, what, and, and published about, what, a week maybe yeah. prior to the attack? I mean, you just could not have gotten it more wrong. Like, How do you keep your job after writing that with a serious, you know, with a straight face? But that's how, you know, there's never accountability in in, in this administration. We have not witnessed a single instance of accountability, no accountability for Afghanistan, no accountability for a mistake like that, no accountability for the failed or the U.S. military pushing Ukraine to, to conduct an offensive that didn't work. Sullivan's, uh, you know, statement that the, you know, the Middle East could be, you know, more, you know, peaceful. Um, I don't expect any accountability from this administration. And by the way, that's something that countries like Iran and Russia and China, they feed off of that as well. They see that we are, we continue to fail, that we continue to have leaders um, who, who fail us. And, uh, you know, why not? Why not take a risk when you see the U S have such serious um, consequences, you know, or, when there's such a bad results um, from U- in the U.S. foreign policy sphere from the same leaders, absolutely. Yeah, let's uh, move on. Iran has uh, conducted a series of missile launches. Tell us about those. What is the significance of this?
1: So this is very interesting, and I, and I don't intend to scoop myself, but I, at some point in time, I do need to write about
0: this, and I've said that several <laughs> times here. But well, you could scoop it right here, Benham. And there we by go. the way, uh, for the listener, Benham is such a. And I'm going to say, you know, we say this in, in lovingly because we're geeks as well. Benham is the ultimate geek on the, on the Iranian missiles missiles. And when I have questions about them, I have to, I go to Benham. He's the guy that knows it all. So go ahead, Benham. Too Keep awesome you're on
1: you're too kind. So <laughs> with that very kind intro, let me bore everybody for a few minutes. <laughs> not me. Um, there is a capability underwriting two big threats that we face from the Iranians. Now one, the regional threat, the whole acts of resistance, you know, they're backstopped ultimately, not just by the weapons they have in theater and what they can do against local shared adversaries they have with the Iranians, be that the Arabs or the Israelis. Um, but they are backstopped by Iran's massive ballistic missile arsenal, which is in their home, the largest in the Middle East. And then on the other front, we've been talking about, or some folks have been talking about, this growing nuclear threat posed by Iran, particularly the uh, continued, you know, violations of not just the NPT but the Additional Protocol. The fact that you just had a former head of Iran's Atomic Energy Organization liken Iran to having all the components to build a car and saying that the car is akin to an atomic bomb. So Iran has literally everything, but has it dispersed and disassembled. So in, in this world of why hasn't there been more pushback on the nuclear and why hasn't there been push more pushback on the regional, the underwriting force that restrains us is, well, Iran's missile program. And let me just point to two quick little revolutions for us here. Last month, Iran launched a solid propellant a three-stage satellite launch vehicle successfully, uh, using all solid propellants for all stages, so basically uh, building an ICBM in plain sight. And then they they successfully launched a liquid propellant two-stage system that they had failed for many years to actually get something into low-Earth orbit with. Um, and both of them, the solid propellant one, obviously with more explicit military connections, provide a pathway to longer-range missiles, particularly IRBMs and ICBMs, so first Europe then America can fall within Iran's missile range. That aside, a few days ago, Iran launched for the first time what we had feared since 2014-15, which was on an actual tanker to be able to rail launch a ballistic missile. And they didn't necessarily call this an anti-ship ballistic missile because this seems to be a range further than any declared Iranian anti-ship ballistic missile to date. The max known ranges for Iranian anti-ship ballistic missiles are about 1,000 kilometers, and that's taking Iranian reporting at face value. They did not mention the name of this system, but they basically showed a container with uh, its doors dropping, a rail launcher popping up, and being able to shoot a single-stage solid-propellant rail launch ballistic missile, they claim allegedly up to 1,700 kilometers. And the reason this matters is Iran need not only go to ICBM lengths uh, using larger solid-propellant motors. It can put smaller, shorter-range systems on these cargo ships, move the cargo ships out wherever, and then have that function as an extended range. Iran talked about this in 2021 with one of its converted oil tankers into an Islamic Republic uh, Navy or IRGC ship, um, that they could house drones on this ship and function as an extended reach for the range of these drones. Now they've actually done it with surface-to-surface missiles that they could fire at sea at allegedly sea and surface-based targets. So plus 1,700 kilometers minimum on the furthest range of where some of these tankers can go. So that's one problem. Then the second is, you know, Iran uses missile drills and missile tests for political communication as much as it does for, uh, milit- show, you know, harnessing its own military utility. The more you test weapons, the more you know about your force readiness, the all-weather performance of these systems, particularly if they play such a critical role in backstopping your nuclear program, and your terror program from ever getting hit, you have to make sure these systems work. And more recently, not only does Iran test them and transfer them, but it uses these in military operations. You know, we saw that at Pakistan, we saw that at Syria, we saw that at Iraq. Uh, There's been 10 plus Iranian public from their own territory, ballistic missile operations uh, since 2017, when the precision project was really revealed. But there was a mock-up of an Israeli F-35 base. I think the Iranians call it the Palmachim. Palmachim. I I don't know the name in Hebrew, airbase. In 2019, Netanyahu gave a speech from here. In 2023, um, he gave a speech that the Iranians conflated as being from this base of saying, oh, we are actually attacking Iran. And in 2019, he said the F-35s had the range from that base to attack Iran. And Iran created in terms of the mock-up, the exact diameter, if not a little bit smaller diameter, of this airbase and launched both solid propellant and liquid propellant ballistic missiles, but two liquid propellant ballistic missiles that they had redone the warheads over. Uh, So it had finlets, it had maneuvering reentry vehicles, and they showed you had, allegedly, a circular error probable or accuracy of up to four meters. So it could hit within four meters of its proposed target. And the video, unfortunately, is shockingly accurate unless it's doctored with. And it shows, you know, these warheads basically crashing into tents that simulate Uh, exactly the building structure of Palmahim Air Base. And, you know, Iran has a long history of using missile tests to send, you know, anti-Israel, anti-Semitic messages. So here they are firing in 2024 at uh, an airbase that they, at a a mock-up of an Israeli airbase. Last month, they fired a missile that was named after uh, the uh, last Jewish stronghold in Arabia that was overrun by the Prophet Muhammad's armies in the 7th century. Uh, they in, in 2022, if I'm not mistaken, they've launched missiles at a mock-up of Israel's nuclear reactor in Dimona. Uh, in 2018, if I'm not mistaken, or 2017, they've fired ballistic missiles at a mock-up of a Star of David. In 2016, they have written Death to Israel in Hebrew on their ballistic missiles. And their first ballistic missiles, procured during the Iran-Iraq war, they wrote in Arabic and in Persian, Death to Israel, Death to America, Death to Saddam, Death to the Soviet
0: Union, just in case anyone didn't get the message. You know, you mentioned the mock-up, and that brings me back to an, an Iranian attack on U.S. forces. Now, this was—it uh, was a militia attack, actually. They, but the Iranians built a mock-up. This was in 2006 of the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, it was in damn, what was the? I can't—I can't remember. I'm going off of memory here, and this was so long ago. But um, they kidnapped uh, the this militia. It was uh, one of being what became a Siba Hawk and a guy named Case Ghazali. Was involved in this, and, and Abu Mustafa al-Shabani. Um, they've run their key militia leaders in Iraq now, um, but they built a mock up of this um, of this military center that was in Iraq where U.S. advisors were advising Iraqi police, and they actually executed it. So when I hear the Iranians built a mock up to do something, it, I perk up and because I, I take that seriously. I'm not saying the Iranians are going to launch an attack on an Israeli base. I'm sure it's more symbolic, but it just brings that to mind. Um, they're they are they're deadly serious about their operations and what they, what they plan to do. And who knows, maybe they, if they feel the time is right, that they could execute an attack like that. I, I find it interesting, Benham, that, you know, you were talking about, um, it's Iran's nuclear capabilities. It's missile, clearly to me, they have the ballistic missile capability. Do you think that the Iranians are close that like, I'm a, look, I'm not an expert on this. This is my opinion after watching this for years and reading a lot about it. I think the Iranians have the ability to build a nuclear weapon, and now I think they have the ability to to put it on top of a warhead. It's just a matter of them putting the finish on it if they haven't already done it in secret. What is your expert opinion on or your analysis of what is Iran's nuclear capabilities are?
1: You know, this is as much an intelligence question because one person's definition of weaponization may not be the same as another's. And if you look at what we do know, the known knowns, if you will, is that did it have a crash program to develop this as fast as possible? That was part of the Ahmad plan. That's what the Older IEA reporting talked about, and that's precisely what the Israelis showcased to the world when they kidnapped and and showcased the Atomic Archive. So clearly the move towards developing these bridge wires and detonators was on paper. There was was a desire precisely to do this. Um, How far they are, we still don't know. I am of the view that given this stuff is essentially on the Internet and that this was stuff that they wanted to do in the pre-2003 era, When you look at how far they've come on so many other capabilities, and given that weaponization may be so hard to detect, and given that there are gaps in IEA reporting, that the public assessments of 12 to 18 months, I think are are way overstated. So as in, if Iran can produce enough fissile material for one nuclear weapon within five days, and then for several within several months... um, And the backstop to that is, oh no, don't worry, that is just the fissile material for them to weaponize it and, you know, put it into the hemispheres and, you know, and miniaturize and get into the warhead. If we assume it's a ballistic missile delivery vehicle, um, would take 12 to 18 months. I think that stuff is going to be significantly shortened. Um, but let me also throw this confounding factor and I'm working on a paper, you know, inshallah with someone I met at this conference abroad. Um, but I told this person who has done a lot of academic work in this space, um, that about a year and a half ago, an Iranian IRGC controlled outlet, you know, poo-pooed the idea of weaponization and poo-pooed amid the time of, you know, everybody from a former intelligence minister several years ago saying, Iran is a Persian cat, don't push us or, you know, something's going to happen. Iran is creating the facts on the ground now so that even if we do something kind of kinetic or, you know, restore deterrence, quote unquote, meaningfully, they might say, hey, bro, you pushed us and now we got to go all the way. And by the way, they're all the way can happen much quicker and, and much more secretly then we may be able to detect intelligence-wise through national technical means or through international monitoring with uh, the IAEA and whatnot. And that really is the real fear here. And when you look at why the U.S. has not overtly struck Iran and the Israelis have not overtly struck Iran, you get the conclusion, which was the headline of that, which was part of the headline of that Tasnim news agency story from about a year and a half ago, when they said, all you really need for deterrence is strong, conventional, whatever military capability and a robust enough nuclear program, they didn't say nuclear weapon, why would they pay the cost of weaponization? Even if it, you know, low probability chance of being detected, why would they pay the cost of going all the way when they have the benefit of it right now? No one has attacked them overtly. And every single sabotage and cyber attack they have used to go forward, not backward. This is a countercultural thing, even within our own office. But I think, unfortunately, they are the one reason these guys have been able to ride the high for so well is they have gotten most of the fruits of the nuclear deterrence without the full nuclear weaponization, as far as we know. Um, and I mean, the, the, by its fruits, you shall know them. The proof is in the pudding. No one has done this kind of an attack. And that is leading to more of this endogeneity problem with the Iranians. The more secure they feel, the more they invest in these capabilities, the more they use these capabilities earlier, the more secure they feel, the more deterred we are, and this rinse and repeat
0: cycle. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great, Analysis, Benham. I hadn't thought of it that way—that they actually don't have to cross the threshold because they're already getting what they want. It's—it's it's fascinating. Um, last topic, Benham. The there was an attack on an Israeli military base in the town of Safed. All of rockets also landed within the town itself. One of the attacks killed an Israeli soldier. This this town and this base is about thirteen kilometers from the border with Lebanon, but no one's claimed credit for it. Who do we think did this? Um, is this is it going to be any surprise if the answer is most definitely Hezbollah? I, I certainly don't think we should be surprised.
1: Um, you know, the Israelis have already moved around about 80 to 100,000 people, internally displaced people, because of the new normal every day on the northern border of some kind of cross-border attacks from Hezbollah, some kind of military response from the Israelis, and rinse and repeat. But the reason the Safed attack is 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 important is because A, some Iranian news outlets talk about Hezbollah having a copy, an unlicensed copy, a variant of something they stole, of an older Israeli anti-tank weapon, the Spike. The Iranians call it the Almas. That's the Persian and Arabic word for diamond. Uh, There are some allegations that that anti-tank weapon was used in terms of at least the distance uh, in uh, in some of these attacks. But in general, there is more risk-taking by Hezbollah on a day-to-day basis. And I think this is very much them not wanting to get involved in the kind of activity that requires a massive military blowback a la October Seven, but also still saving face and also still performing their role, which is, you know, they're trying to do death to Israel, but death to Israel by a thousand cuts. And every smaller capability that lets them inch just a little bit further, okay, nothing more than eight miles. Okay, nothing more than 10 miles. Okay, now we're at 13. You know, this is, these are game changing moments, but in the aggregate, never on their own. And that's why I think the Safed base, when we look back on whatever is going to be coming our way, whether that's a third Lebanon war or not, uh, is, going to ha- is going to be a pivotal moment.
0: Yeah, I, it's, you know what bothers me about this is you, it's, you called it the new normal, right? And how long, you know, how long can Israel take this? I mean, keeping up to 100,000 citizens evacuated, 300,000 soldiers mobilized now. Yes, a significant portion is down south, but a significant portion is up north in preparation. The question is: Is how long can Israel tolerate this level of attacks? And the other thing too is the international community really doesn't seem very concerned that Israel is under constant fire from Lebanon daily. And so as that new normal, as that becomes the new normal, you know, the the pressure is on Israel to just suck this up and take it. Do you think the Israelis um, can take this much longer from uh, Hezbollah? And if, and if the
1: Israelis do something more well, a I think you know, a real Third Lebanon war with Hezbollah is something the IDF, IAF, the whole establishment, whatever is going to have to think through um, because it is a qualitatively different kind of fight. The imagery that will come from that fight, the civilian casualties, the costs are very much not on the scale of even what we saw with Hamas on October 7th. That's my estimation. That's not designed to feed into the Hezbollah deterrent, but also to explain why it hasn't been done yet in the post-2006 war buildup that Hezbollah has been able to effectuate. Uh, It doesn't mean that the Israelis can't fight better or smarter or more strategically, but that the terrorist entire architecture that surrounds Israel is betting on the erosion over time of the goodwill and the state society contiguity and continuity uh, that October 7 brought and may see this as a war of attrition that they can win and win simply by surviving. And by surviving, by allowing Israel to accomplish maybe select military goals against Hezbollah, but never accomplish a political goal. And in that world, the international community doesn't seem to care about enforcement of 1701, pushing Hezbollah back, demilitarizing the zone south of Latani. And uh almost two decades since that, you know, resolution, the time has come for these Israelis to ask if the UN won't enforce it, if the Lebanese armed forces won't enforce it, who will?
0: Yeah, the Lebanese government came out and said they wouldn't do it. And, you know, it's they can't. I mean, they also can't. <laughs> they right. I mean, and that's the that's the truth, right? I mean, I still question whether they want to. Um I imagine from if I was the Lebanese government i'd I'd be happy that Hezbollah has most of its forces, you know south of the Latani. I don't want them you know, not that they don't have a lot of influence outside the south, but um yeah, yeah it's 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 a real conundrum and and I, I do again I worry about that new normal. Will the pressure be placed on Israel to not respond forcefully, to not enter Lebanese territory because if they want to no, you know my, my last question for you Benham, even if the Israelis pushed Hezbollah north of the Litani, is that enough to deter or to prevent? Um, significant number of rockets, missiles from hitting Israel. Does Hezbollah, or my question really, Hezbollah have, capa- have the capability to strike Israel from north of the Ladani?
1: It certainly crosses out some of these copies the Iranians have been able to give them, like some of these anti-tank weapons. Uh, it begins to threaten the range for that, you know, the, the Burkan, the Irams, as well as lots of the Katushas. But the rest... Uh, no, it it, it doesn't, uh, and that's because the where the battle lines were drawn for 2006 is not where the capabilities ended up in 2024. It does go a significant way, it doesn't go all the way.
0: Benham, thank you very much. That's a excellent analysis from you as always. Um, it's a Israel is really in a conundrum when it comes to Hezbollah, and I this is that the game that Iran plays is quite masterful. Thanks for coming on today to talk this all through. Always great to be with you. Hopefully better times. Yeah, looking forward to next Friday. I'm sure there'll be more interesting things to talk about. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, Benham. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just remember, you can listen to us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe to Generation Jihad and leave us a review, preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.